Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. Now when I came up with this mad idea last year, I could not quite imagine the guests that I would be getting on this podcast. Be honest, I thought it'd probably be me in my bedroom rambling on about how much I love the music of Paul Weller. And I know there's a little bit of that, but hey, the guests make this thing completely. And none finer, surely, than rock and roll royalty, as Mick Talbot calls him, Rick Buckler, drummer for The Jam. Described as the big beat behind all of those great songs and the perfect drummer for the perfect band, Rick tells his story from the early days learning the instruments and meeting Paul, Steve Brooks, Bruce Foxton at Shearwater School in Woking. And what you'll hear is a man really proud of the legacy and the music that endures to this day. So let's get into it. Hey, Rick. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well. Now, thank you so much for joining me. I'm I'm so excited about this, and I know the fans listening will be as well. Oh, good. <laughs> Make a change, will it? <laughs> now, to kick off this story, we need to go right back to the very beginning, if, if that's all right. And I appreciate that this is quite a, a lot of time that's passed, uh, so there may be things that you can't quite remember and stuff like that, but that's all right. I want to take you back to Shearwater School, to, to the very early days, and to that formation of this band that we all know and love and that has stood the test of time with these incredible songs and this music that you created together. When was it that you first started hanging out with Paul and with Steve Brooks and this relationship started? Really, it was because of um, there was a, a music teacher there called Avery and um, he used to encourage people to meet up in the music room at lunch times. Um, I think some people were there because it, they didn't have to go out into the playground and some people were there because they were generally interested in music. There was a lot of album swapping and, you know, sort of muso talk, if you like. You know, there was a couple of guitarists. I think there's two, three other drummers. Um, yeah, you know, so it was, it was a good sort of place for sort of like minds to meet up and, you know, and have a chat and what have you, just really, for, you know, during the lunch hour. And that's really where I met Paul and Steve. I mean, there were some good players. I mean, in those days, you know, I mean, there was a lot of people who learned instruments and uh, what have you. I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's like one of those ways out of working class life is either football or music. So there was a lot of interesting stuff there in those days. You mentioned album swapping, and this is a lovely thing. We've not talked about this on the podcast really at all, but the idea, I mean, yeah, albums were expensive, right? And as kids, it's not like you could kind of buy every single release that came out. So how did that work? So would you decide which album you were going to buy and which one your mate was going to buy, and then you swap between the two of you at times? Yeah, yeah. usually somebody comes in and says, oh, I bought you know, the new Led Zeppelin one, or I've got Elton John or something like that, and you, you probably know nothing about them because it's a, it's a journey of discovery, obviously, in the very early days. So, you know, when you're about sort of 14, 15, that, that sort of thing. And so you, 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 you borrow them and you lend out because, like you say, albums are expensive. And so it was a good way of, of deciding who you liked, who you didn't like without having to sort of commit to buying anything. Because, I mean, most of the radio at that time still 
focused on the charts and maybe some of the 60s music because if you're talking about the early 70s and mid 70s album music was unexplored really so it was it was nice to sort of have an access to that by borrowing other people's albums that they bought in and of course people wouldn't enthuse about the moody blues or you know whatever they've uh, <laughs> they've recently got into you know so it was uh, it was quite healthy in that respect how did you get into the drums because your school didn't even have a proper kit did it didn't you didn't you have to make a set of drums is that right yeah i mean obviously yeah, the, the 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 school did not have a drum kit at all. They had very little in the way of musical instruments. They had a few tambourines and you know rubbish things lying about. But it, <laughs> it wasn't. Um, it was because the guy was a music teacher and he was. You know, they had a, a rusty old piano and uh, that sort of thing. I mean, I started a band with my twin brother and uh, another friend of mine. And I really liked the drums because I just, I don't know, there's something I, I like listening to the drums. And so I was sort of drawn towards that. But yeah, I had I had to make my own drum kit really to start with because I couldn't afford a brand new one. And they even even today, brand new drum kits are a lot more expensive than just going out and buying a, a guitar. There's a lot more stuff to get, you know. So, um, I mean, I couldn't make the bass drum, so I borrowed that from um, uh, Guildford YMCA. There was one bass drum lying around doing absolutely nothing, so I thought, well, I'll borrow that. Um, I don't think they got it back, actually. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so that's how it started. And then I, I bought my, my, my kit sort of piecemeal. You know, I went to the local music store and uh, bought it bit by bit and built it up from there. And then eventually I had a, had a proper drum kit, which was a Heyman. And how are you learning to play the drums? Because this is not, it's not like you're, you're watching videos on YouTube and finding these skills and these techniques. Is it just literally practice makes perfect? There's a lot of that. No matter what you, no matter where you get your input from whether even today you still practice is always the best thing to do i got an interest in by by just simply watching people on telly or, or you know going to shows and watching other drummers i met a guy who was actually a very very good jazz drummer and i got quite a few pointers from him it was not lessons as such but you know just things about you know you should do this and keep your eye on that and it was just pick it up as you went along and obviously with with, with drums it's a lot of experimentation this works that doesn't work how do you do this you know the traditional way of playing you can hear it you so you've got a fair idea about what you want to go for so it, it is just a matter of you know of, of getting into it and playing as much as you possibly can i guess there's a lot of kind of muscle memory as well because this is it's hugely athletic playing the drums isn't it you need to be fit yes you do yeah you have to stay up to speed most of the time you can't sort of put it down and pick it up as easily probably as other instruments but I, I think it's the same as with anything really the more you play the better you get you don't nobody gets any worse mm. so you know you just simply have to just keep going really I mean I used to practice on the end of my bed because if you you know you practice on something that has no rebound um, it's a lot harder it's like boxers running in heavy boots and then when they take the boots off it's uh, you know it's a lot easier for them but they've actually built up all the muscles in their legs and stuff so it's, it's that sort of thing really and so yeah it was um, I went through quite a lot of bed sheets that way <laughs> which used to annoy, annoy my mum you know one corner would be this huge hole in some of the bed sheets but couldn't have a drum kit at home not to set up and play I mean it's like playing football in your living room it's just doesn't it's frowned upon isn't it you know? I mean the other thing with, with drumming is it feels like and certainly in the early days of when you were you know gigging around Woking and, and then travelling up to London and stuff with drumming there's I mean there's a lot of kit to carry around 
it's you know it's not like with a guitar you can carry a guitar or a flute in a little case or even a keyboard man alive with drums there's a, that's a lot of stuff you're lugging about isn't it oh there is yeah yeah i mean the just the, the practical logistics of it you know being able to fit it into a car is is a is a trick in itself yeah it's 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 not a, it's not a great instrument to learn in that respect you know it's like you're the double bass player the one who's got the great huge thing that you have to carry around all the time so it that it does have its sort of fun side shall we say you know when it comes to sort of doing any shows but you know it's it just comes along with the territory you just deal with that as as you best you can really and at which point in this does the jam form is it that you're roped in for a live gig i mean it's a bit like ringo with um pete best wasn't it there's another guy in the band already was it bomber harris and and you're brought in when he's away or something is that right Something like that. I mean, it was really that Paul and um, Steve had formed this sort of duo, two guitar, two six string guitar duo. And uh, you know, generally the thinking is that if you if you want to be if you want to have a proper band, you've got to have a drummer. You know, um, and so that was their priority. So I mean, they used to do a few token things around, you know, the workingmen's clubs and that sort of thing, and and fairs and fates. Um, around the Woking area as a duo um, and if anything sort of more major came up they would try and get Bomber Harris involved I mean in those days it was all cover versions it was all rock and roll 50s cover versions He, I wouldn't say he was actually sort of you know part of the band they used to pull him in whenever they felt they they um, had something worthwhile to, to do you know he was more into jazz I think I remember where there was a guy called Dave Stryker who used to run the local youth club in Shearwater basically somebody said one day well, why don't you come along and play at the youth club so they said well okay so they, they I think um, Neil Harris, Bomber Harris couldn't couldn't make it with one of these nor another. So they asked me if I'd do it about a week beforehand. I said, <laughs> right, you know. So I think Paul gave me a stack of Chuck Berry records, and so we just learned all these covers of these rock and roll standards, and right. um, just did it from there. I mean, we we learned all the beginnings, and then we made up the ends, you know. So it was it was a, it was a bit of a hilarious show in that respect. Or a winking and nudging going on about when we should finish playing, making this noise, you know. But yeah, I suppose it. That was the start of it, and it gave us a taste for, for doing more. And then we got a bit more serious and a bit more rehearsing of, of you know, got a proper set together and set lists. And um, John, Paul's dad, was a taxi driver, so he knew all of the workingmen's clubs and CIU clubs and that sort of thing around the Surrey area, the various people that went there. Um, so it wasn't long before he started to, you know, put us on as a, the, uh, you know, the Wednesday night turn or the Thursday night turn, that sort of thing, really, to try us out. They used to keep their best acts for the weekend, obviously, you know. <laughs> um, so they, you know, they, they were a bit skeptical about whether you were going to sound awful or whether you know you were going to turn up at all and all that sort of stuff and we we soon sort of forged a name for ourselves of, of playing people just went there for a drink it was the, the beer was cheap and they weren't there to see the acts really they were just there because it was a social club um so they'd meet their mates and it was it was uh, uh you know a good place to go because it, the price was right really didn't steve and paul Get you nicked by the police when they were building Woking Town Centre. That um, uh, there was ladders and going. I mean, it was not like today where they fence it all off or anything. And I think we just got drunk and started to climb ladders. And uh, and then I think we were standing on this roof of of something. And um, Steve Brooks quite stupidly shouted out, "Look out! There's a copper." <laughs> <laughs> which got the attention of the policeman. So we all tried to go down this ladder. Um, I was the last one down, and I've just got collared. You know, what are you doing on that roof? Don't know. 
<laughs> Silly. So that was like cocky. That was about right back in the early days when it was me, Paul, and Steve. The thing that strikes me is you become professional really quickly. And I don't know, how, is that down to the three of you or John Weller being involved? But the, the the set list, like you say, the finding gigs. I mean, one set list, there's like 47 songs on it, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you were taking this seriously. Well, absolutely. I mean, we um, we absolutely we loved it. I mean, it was um, we, you soon realise when you're dumped almost into the deep end, right, do a show at, at these workingmen's clubs, you would have a break halfway through and you do maybe two and a half hours playing in total and you know you try and you start off with all the softer ballads and stuff at the beginning and work your way up to the more raucous stuff by the end of the night but most people you know they used to drink you better by the time you know they you know what i mean it was by the time it got to sort of 11 o'clock when most of these clubs used to turn out everybody was half cut so you know (laughs) you could sort of let loose a lot more then but yeah it was a great place to sort of learn the trade of just playing you know, yeah. not necessarily songwriting or anything, but being put in front of a live audience. And, and most of them, like I say, didn't, weren't there to see you. Some of them were really critical. You know, they used to, you know, stand in front of the stage with their fingers in their ears and, you know, make all sorts of gestures at you if they didn't like you for one wow. Or, wow. You know, I mean, it was... I mean, it didn't go quite as far as having chicken wire in front of you, but, um, you know, it, no, not far off. But, I mean, we played most of the sort of favourites from the from the 50s and 60s and that sort of thing. So it went down pretty well. People used to have a dance to some of them and whatever, you know, and we kept the volume right and we did what the venue told us to do. We turned up on time, we packed away, we went, we behaved ourselves. We came sort of quite reliable in that respect. I mean, our work ethic always was very good, you know, and that was basically as me, Paul and... Steve. So it wasn't the jam as you would know it. Hmm. Um, you know, the material or, or the look or anything, you know. Um, then there was a couple of other changes. Guys called Dave Waller was involved and we tried getting a keyboard player. And then Steve obviously left. He was the lead guitarist and main singer when, when he left. Because we'd been doing this for quite a while, for quite, you know, three or four years running around the clubs and we weren't really getting anywhere. You know, we, we, we'd filled all these clubs and we felt that there was you know, more to do, but we we couldn't simply go around doing the clubs for the rest of our lives, being paid 25 quid, you know. It's quite a small circuit, Woking, isn't it? And it's, I guess it's then the, the same kind of faces. And and at that point, so Steve Brooks leaves and you audition to replace. And the jam that we know and love is created in the sense that it's you, Bruce and Paul. Bruce turned you down, first of all, didn't he? Yeah, because but Bruce was a rhythm guitarist and Paul wanted to play bass. So, and he wasn't very much into the music that we were doing, you know, um, he made it quite clear that, you know, well, you know, all your stuff is all dated, it's not modern, it's not going anywhere. And and I think eventually what swayed him was the fact that we had gigs and this band that he was in didn't, they weren't doing anything, you know, they were still sort of rehearsing and that sort of thing. But it soon became clear that when, because Paul took on the mantle of being lead vocalist, but he couldn't play bass and sing. Um, it just didn't really work out for him in, in that respect. Because um, he was always a big fan of Paul McCartney. That's why he's called Paul. His real name's John. There was all sorts of things going on there. I mean, we couldn't have two Pauls in the band, so I became Rick because that's my middle name. Paul said to Bruce one day, well, if you want to stay in the band, you're going to have to give up rhythm guitar and take up bass. Uh, and then Paul would go back to, to playing rhythm guitar. I don't know whether Bruce was that particularly happy about that to start with. It was a, you know, it was a bit of a transition period, but... I mean, he took to it. I mean, it, it, there is a there is an upside to this that when Bruce plays bass, he plays it like a rhythm guitarist. 
So as a three-piece, it's ideal. We've got rhythm with bass. Because we were always looking for a fourth member. We could never find anybody who stuck around long enough. So we started to form this core of the three-piece and trying very hard to be a four-piece band or sound like a four-piece band with only three guys. So and I think that helped develop the sound and, and the energy and uh, and the way that we sort of played and put songs together in the future. But it was all, all beginning, you know, because of that particular scenario and at the time this is so, so the, your first gig with, with as a band with the band was like um, 1974 but the music industry and and the times are changing and the bands are changing and i think obviously there's punk and at which point did you stop playing those covers that you mentioned and start turning into the, the jam as we know it and i'm guessing there was quite a bit of influence around the clash and the sex pistols and things and dr feelgood and stuff but talk me through how that came about was it an overnight thing and you went actually we need to do something different or was it a gradual progression it was a little bit like an overnight thing because like i say we got fed up with doing the clubs the people that were there weren't there to see us they weren't into the music that we wanted to do paul and steve had started with you know, writing a couple of songs, mostly love songs and um, not good ones, but they were okay. But they, you know what I mean? There was no real direction to the songwriting. Um, and it was all right. We did a few recordings and we got turned down by some of the best record companies in Britain, which was nice, you know. But I think we started, obviously we, we were reading The Enemy and Sounds and those sort of papers and seeing all these other bands playing in London. That's only 30 miles away from us in uh, from Woking. So we said to John, you know, look, we, we want to try and do these shows in London. You know, um, they don't pay very much at all, if anything, really, these things. You, you were lucky if you got, um, if you you know, if you got a gig in London at uh, the clubs and the Nashville and that sort of thing. And so John wasn't particularly chuffed about it. He just thought, no, no, you've got a good thing going here, you know, playing the clubs and, and what have you. So he wasn't particularly keen on, on us moving into London because it was going to cost us money, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, by that time, I was sort of out to work. Paul, I think, had some part-time things, not nothing terrific, you know. But we decided that that was the way to go. If 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 the record companies weren't going to come to us, then we would have to go to them. And they only seemed to hang around in these clubs. And I think once we got into the London, what was then the pub rock scene, we started to see other bands and we started to realise that there was an audience of our own age group that used to turn up. But we were still doing covers. We were still doing a lot of rock and roll stuff. So in a way, we sort of fitted in with that sort of Dr. Feelgood sort of uh, thing, you know, of, of uh, energetic rock and roll. As time went on, um, you know, I think we then started to discover the punk thing started to emerge quite a bit. They had their own scene. They had their own clubs, you know, whereas, you know, we were doing more sort of mainstream sort of music venues that um, were sort of hang-ups from the from the 70s. You know, there were bands like Bees Make Honey and all sorts of strange names. A um, <laughs> little bit hippie, but, you know, well, and we made a name for ourselves in that particular circuit because it was a, a good, lively show and and, um, and that was that. I mean, I, it was obviously from there that Paul saw the pistols and I think he got a sort of leader about, you know, songwriting and subject matter and and what have you, and um, and it, I think it just gave him a few pointers and a and a direction, which was brilliant. I mean, it just it just sort of almost opened his eyes to the possibilities of uh, of what you could do with songwriting. It wasn't just you know the sort of traditional thing that had gone on in the uh, early seventies. So it all started to kick off quite quickly for us at that point, you know. And then obviously Bruce was just literally just come on board at that point, and then it, I suppose. From the moment we started doing the London clubs, that's when you would recognise us as the jam, really. 
in, after sort of doing about three years around the clubs and stuff, I think we did a sort of year and a half, whatever, two years on the London pub scene. And obviously, you know, that because we were getting audiences in, in, in these places, I think it attracted the attention of the record companies to say, look, these guys are filling these places out. You know, they're only small venues, but, you know, it was a good indicator that people actually wanted to come and see us. So you get signed by Polydor, Chris Parry, a single, possible album, six grand famously, but it's not like the money goes in your back pocket, is it? It's kind of, there's so much to pay for out of that from, from various things. So um, you presumably didn't see much of that cash, if any. No, that, exactly. I mean, it's, you hear, some, you know, bands being paid, you know, a hundred grand, all this sort of thing. I mean, it's nonsense, really, because it's the record company spending it on your behalf. You know, I say, well, look, we've put this, all they've done is they've budgeted for this money that they will spend this on you in the next I don't know, six months to a year or whatever they feel they want to do. And it's up to you to sell records for them to recoup it out of your share of the royalty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so everything's weighted totally on the side of the record companies. I mean, they've been doing this for years. They they know their own business. It doesn't matter whether you're given six grand or six hundred thousand pounds. It, it doesn't really it doesn't really mean very much. You know, I mean, as soon as they saw that the, the records were selling and, and what have you, they increased the budget. I mean, it's just yeah. as simple yeah. as that. Makes sense. Yeah, because it's all going on recordings and tour support and transport yeah. and crew and, and all that. And there's two things I wanted to ask you about that. So one, that first single in the city just sounds so different and so new and so fresh. That must have been so exciting. And then the second thing was around your work ethic as a band, because you you gigged so much. It was like nuts, the amount of shows you're playing. Um, but you had to do that to get to sound as good as you did, right? Well, yeah, like I said, I mean, it was, it was two things. We obviously loved doing it. And we really felt, I mean, from the moment we got signed, it became serious. It wasn't the weekend job that it was before. You know, and if we wanted to stay there, we had to not only prove ourselves to the audience and, you know, build a sort of fan base, but we had to prove ourselves to the record company as well that we were worth spending money on. And we had this this almost ridiculous um, ethic that if you offered us a gig, we'd do it, right. you know, irrespective of whether it, there was no, well, what sort of show is it or how much money they're being paid or anything like that. Oh, yeah, we'll do it. I mean, sometimes you do like two shows a day, you know, and it was crazy stuff. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, the, I think the first UK tour that Polydor set up for us, I mean, it was just enormously long. It just kept getting added to and added to. And, and it started to tell on, on us, I think, you know, the, the amount of pressure and the, you know, the transport when I mean, it's, you know, you're doing long, ridiculous long hours during the day and you're constantly traveling. Um, I don't think we only had one suit with our stage suit. <laughs> and that used to come out every night, irrespective. Nicky Weller was saying about that. Yeah, about the fact that it would kind of go home and Anne would have to wash it, which would mean that by the end of the tour it had shrunk. <laughs> well, yeah, it was. Yeah, you, you, yeah, it was just ridiculous, really. I mean, <laughs> the first time we went to the states, um, I think we did, we did four towns, two shows a night, two nights in each town, so that's sixteen shows over something like about ten days. And obviously, that was starting off in uh, Los Angeles. San Francisco, Boston, then New York. So there's a lot of distance involved in traveling and stuff. By the time we got to New York, the show, you know, could have been done by the suits on their own. You know, <laughs> we didn't. Um, and they were no fun putting them on because they were still wet from the night before, you know, soaked oh, in sweat no. and stuff. So, yeah, it was all pretty dreadful. Um, <laughs> I think that might, might have added to a certain, you know, flavor of the band. You know what I mean? Look at these guys. Look at the suits they're wearing. <laughs> but, yeah, um, there you go. It was 
I mean, I've got quite fond memories of those things, even though it was it was no fun, really. I mean, you wouldn't do it on purpose unless you had to, you know. But yeah, it's good, good days. The other thing that comes through a lot in the conversations I've had with fans and when you watch those shows now is, and I don't know how you were doing two of them in a day, oh man, the energy and the ferociousness and the pace of the songs and you guys were on fire. It's incredible. And and you're driving that in the because there's, if I'm, if I'm looking at you, you've got well, on your your right, Bruce on your left, is that right? Yeah, that's what, we always set up in the same way, yeah. yeah. You're centre stage, and it feels like you're kind of the grounding of this band, but you're driving it through the, the rhythm, and, and it'd be great to understand that from a drummer point of view, but how you how you kept that pace up for like, you know, an hour, an hour and a half for a gig, it's incredible. Mm, yeah, well, you, I suppose you sort of get used to it. I mean, it was, I think it became a thing with us that we 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 wanted to keep that energy up. It can be a bit dangerous, you know, I mean, you think, You've played the song fast, but well, the next day you think we might we just up it a little bit, <laughs> you know, what I mean? <laughs> to keep the pressure on. And this, and also maybe the volume gets slightly more and more each time. So you know, your hearing starts to suffer and and what have you. But because we're doing it on such a regular basis, you're up to speed. You're you're match fit, as they say. You know, I don't think we really felt about about that. Really, it wasn't that wasn't a hardship. It was you know, I remember. You go on stage and then all of a sudden you come off stage. You just don't remember the show. It's like you live second by second through the whole thing. Mm. Um, but you don't remember it as, as, as you would, you know, walk in the park or something. It's just like, yes. And you go for it, you know. So it, 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 uh, it was a bit of a strange phenomenon in that respect, but it was, it, it just really was fantastic to keep up that energy, really. I, oh, it's remarkable. And the songs, a lot of the songs are two and a half minutes. Three minutes. I mean, there's nothing longer than three minutes, really. So you're just kind of bashing through. And as soon as one song finishes, the next one starts. It's not like there's a bit of a breather and a chat with the audience and or anything like that. It's bang, 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 bang. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, Paul was never one for sort of having conversations with the audience, really. There, you know, we didn't really see a lot of point in, in, in that. I don't like it when I go and see a band and they spend two minutes between songs and there's one guy still trying to tune up or they decide to have a little chat amongst themselves or you think, no, no, come on, we want to see the whole show. So we did put the thing together as a show, um, even, you know, the order of the songs and how we were going to go about it and whether we were going to link the songs together, what we were going to do for an encore because you've got one whether you wanted one or not, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we had a lot of it sort of psyched out in their mind about how we were going to go about this and I think it just kept that whole thing it was exciting for the people to watch hopefully that uh, you know we weren't going to be you know boring or or anything like that so uh, there's all sorts of reasons why we did do. So as the band becomes bigger, you're selling out bigger arenas, um, you're having hit singles and introducing more and more songs into that repertoire. Was there any point where it became less fun? Because you were constantly either touring, writing or recording. And I think there's an element where, I mean, your work ethic is incredible. And I think there's, there's a danger in retrospect where a lot of people talk about Paul and the jam and it wasn't. It was a band. It was the three of you and you and Bruce work so hard on the sound for the backing tracks. You're, you're doing all nighters together. But was there, was there an element where any of that became less than, than fun? Um, not really. I mean, it was, it moved on a pace. I mean, we, we soon came out of the, the, the London clubs to the smaller venues, but going on tour, being signed. 
moving up to bigger venues, being paid a little bit more money. We could afford better hotels, better transport. Um, then you start doing other things, other territories. You're going to Europe and Japan and the odd foray into America and stuff like that. So it was, it just kept moving, you know. So it didn't really become boring. We, and we were still doing what we did the most. And the scenery changed. But we were still doing the same thing, you know. We were still sort of plowing ahead with what we what we enjoyed doing. So it didn't really didn't really become boring. I think it got to the point where it it was obvious that we had no direction. Um, I mean, we weren't being managed by John so much. We were being managed by the record company and by the agent. You know, if they said, "Look, we've got this contract with this record amount of records that are coming out. You've got so many singles and one album in the next." I know time period, um, and so they would set the agenda of when we had to record, release, and so therefore where we had to tour, they would know where the records were selling and where we needed to go. While the territories, you know, don't forget the UK and all this sort of stuff. So the record companies pretty much managed the band, and um, and of course they wanted the you know, pound of flesh. And if they said, right, you're right, you're now off to Europe and you do a tour around Europe and you come back and you record another single and then you've got to go and do um, record an album or whatever and release that and promote it and then you've got to go to the States or Japan. We just did it. You know, the record company dictated nearly all of that. Um, and so, you know, the, the agent would then organize the hotels and the transport and the, the tour managers and the crew and, um, you know, the record company would take care of the financing and, uh, and what have you. I mean, when we first signed, the record company said, look, this is the publisher you can use. We recommend him. He's a good guy. This is the agent you should use. These are the solicitors that you should use because we knew nothing. You know, none of us, John included, how to run a band professionally. I mean, John was great in the early days. He he drove us around from working men's clubs to working men's clubs and made sure we got our 25 quid. But I mean, as soon as you step into the professional world, and especially in the way that the band suddenly took off and, um, you know, and it became sort of global, if you like, completely inexperienced, all of us. I mean, it. Um, so it was great that we had a record company that was behind us, but on the other hand, their agenda was slightly different from ours. Um, you know, they they wanted to sell units, and uh, that was their prime goal. It's a business, you know, that's what they do. So it, it, we sort of trucked alongside each other for a while. Um, I mean, there were occasions when they would say, right, we want another single. And you think, well, Paul didn't like writing to order. He never did. Not many people do. So it was nice to sort of throw back and say, well, I'll tell you what, we'll do a what we do really well, we'll do a cover version, uh, you know, which is easy. So we'll do David Watts as a single, for instance, and put that out as a single, which was nice because it was a it was a great song. It was a, not a particularly well known Kings number. A lot of people still think that you know the Jam wrote that, but you know we didn't. But um, so you know, it was nice to sort of have that experience to draw up on when we were under pressure for, for releases and that sort of thing. But, it, you know, it was generally a thoroughly enjoyable thing. But I think the point that we weren't being sort of managed properly, that we didn't have anybody to sort of turn around and say, OK, now that we've established ourselves, we can we can call the shots now about how much workload we we take on, where we go, and, and what releases we do. That I think that that pressure started to really sort of build, and um, and I think Paul started to feel that more than than say me and Bruce did. Although we all felt it, I think Paul just reacted to it a lot more, more you know, more badly than than myself and Bruce did. Um, which I think really just led to, I suppose you could say, you know, Paul burnt out. Really, I mean, but then nobody actually said, right? Okay, stop. Let's let's take six months out. Let's just 
you know, take control and, um, you know, get our own career back on online. And, um, and so really, I think the only way that Paul could see of, of getting out was to sort of break the band up. And that's the most logical um, thing in his mind that, um, that he felt he could do. And, uh, despite everything, you know, from us and, John and the record company saying, you really should think about this. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It, you know, just didn't, didn't come up on his radar at all. So, mm. uh, which was unfortunate. But on the other hand, you know, there's five years of, of very intense work and we did a lot, you know, all of us. We all worked really, really hard and, um, you know, we achieved a great deal, which is great to look back on. Yeah, and, and hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know, you're looking at the, you know, the time, the, the pressures of the label, that treadmill, writing songs to order that you mentioned. And, and maybe you're right. Maybe now you're kind of feeling that you could have done, could you all have done or any of you have done more to break that cycle? But at the time when you're in it, that's, that's an impossible situation because you, you just want to, you want to drive the band forward. You want to be a success. You've got the pressures of the, of the fans and the record labels and everybody. But when that split came, that, I mean, that must have been devastating for you, for Bruce, for, John Weller, I know that Nikki was talking, and Anne chipped in actually saying that um, when when Paul had told them the air was blue, and for the fans, everybody was devastated about that, weren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, it was just the most, you know, you you know, what could possibly go wrong? You know what I mean? At that point, you're selling records, you're touring well, the the shows are great, everything you do is is working out really fantastically. You know, there just seemed no reason for it at all. Um, and I think one of the things that myself and Bruce really noticed was when we were sort of taken aside um, by Paul and John um, in the summer of 82 and, and Paul had decided to tell us that he wanted to leave the band, the reasons that he gave us were totally different from the reasons that came out in the press in the early 83. So that sort of made us think, well, hang on a minute, what, what, why did you really do this? You know, it just seemed like ridiculous. It was a very strange time that the last, six months of the band because we had commitments to do tours and you know we released the live album as the last one to sort of get us out of the record contract um, with Polydor um, and we just quite you know in a very gentlemanly fashion um, fulfilled all of our commitments went out and did the shows which by to my memory were, were, were really good I mean we still we still put plenty into it we didn't sort of you know, you get down in the mouth about it. Well, I mean, I always thought that Paul would change his mind. Bruce wanted to leave the band there and then. He wanted to leave in the summer. He said, well, look, bollocks, this, I'm off. And we had to sort of persuade him not to do that to, to, uh, because Paul could always change his mind and, and just st- stick with it, you know. It was a very sort of strange time, really, for us because, like you say, all the work that had been put into it by myself, Bruce, and Paul, you know, and all the people around us, the record company, the agents, and, it, you know, to, to build something like that and have that success, and, and you know, which is rare, really. Um, a lot of bands don't necessarily survive very long, but to sort of cut it short early seems a bit strange. Um, it's remarkable to me of how you agree to finish things off like properly with one that one final tour because how much of that was contractual like obligation did you feel how much was it was it commitment to the fans because there must have been a bit of you that wanted to do what bruce was saying and just kind of go do you know what that's it that's done we, we can't come back for this um well i didn't i didn't feel like that i mean i i felt you know i'm gonna i'm gonna see this out because um we we were having such a great time you know mm. It just seemed like crazy to us that what are you going to do? I mean, the jam for me, in any case, was the reason for getting out of bed for 10 years. And all of a sudden, it was suddenly not there. 
which um, which was a bit of a strange. It's, it's worse than being made redundant. You're suddenly, you know, you're, you're, you're you don't have a purpose in life, and uh, which you've, you know, you've you've put your heart and soul into it because everything, girlfriends, holidays, jobs, whatever, all came second to the band. You know, we did literally all all of us had that ethic. So it was a bit strange to find that that, that was being. I mean, it was a bit like a sort of kicking the teeth, especially because we weren't even consulted about it. It was just right. That spot's going to happen, and you think, "Oh, just a minute." <laughs> you know I mean? <laughs> it's like your, your partner just decided. Like you wake up one morning, your partner decides they don't want to be with you anymore, and they move out that that same day, almost, isn't it? And, and there's nothing yeah. you can do with it about it. It's completely out of your control. Exactly. You simply have to deal with it, and that's yeah. that's that. So many of the fans have said to me that that tour was the best. You you did five nights at Wembley, and I know that you could have added more. That could have kept coming and coming and coming. But so many of the fans have said that's kind of that's the best tour that you ever did. What do you, what do you remember about that final night? I don't know. Was there any element of you that was ticking off the set list or saving the set list or deciding you know to do something different on the songs or give it one last big shot or something? Um, well, one of the things that did. You know, because obviously you, you, you know, you go through the set list each night and every night. And we had done that all, you know, since its inception. Um, and on the last show, I remember thinking, well, that's the last time we'll ever play that song. Um, and that thought came every single time we finished the song. And I'd look down and see what was next. And, you know, and, you, you, and again, you know, you think, oh, this is the last time we're doing this. So that was really what sort of prompted me in, in you know, later years to revisit the jam songs and form the gift and go and do that, which was uh, a, a lovely experience to, to actually do. But yeah, it was a very odd thing, those last shows, because you could, I, it's difficult to, to explain the emotion of it, but I could see it in the faces of the people in the front row. And I knew that they probably felt the same way that I did. And I bet you, Bruce and Paul, felt the same way as well these people had supported us and come to the shows and bought the records and they're into the same thing that we were and you know we belong to them and you know vice versa so it was a bit of a teary experience really i mean it was it was a bit strange you know all of a sudden to come to a sort of a stop like that for no no justifiable reason none of us had died you know what i mean it wasn't like we weren't selling records or selling tours or you know all the sort of usual things that you see when bands come to a demise um so it's quite novel in that respect and there is one thing when you look now at the legacy that the jam have left and what exists in people's minds and hearts that is so different from the bands of that time that are still playing, that are still together. There's an element where you, I wonder if anybody, you kind of look at it and go, do you know what, There's, that stands up as a decision. We didn't agree with it at the time, but look at it now. When you look at the songs as a drummer, were there particular songs that you were like really proud of and really love playing? Because for me, I'm thinking some of the stuff like All Around the World, that amazing opening um, funeral pyre, which is a nut song generally, but that's that kind of snare drum. The fierce finale of Tube Station. Were there any of those songs where you you hear them on the radio now, or at the time when you were playing, we were like, actually, as a drum, this is a drummer's song. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think we're all immensely proud of all the bits and pieces that we did. You know, we put in. I mean, it's, I think it's back to this thing again. This is a three piece band trying to sound like a four piece. Mm. So we put all sorts of stuff in that, that you know we, we didn't want to rest on our laurels under any of it I mean from, from my point of view which is an odd thing really is that I used to think to myself okay, am I going to remember all these songs one song to the next you know so I used to put in my uh, signature thing 
to say, you know, in the, in the drumming, to say, right, well, this is how I remember it because this bit's in the song, you know, which obviously led to the whole rhythm section being memorable for that particular song. Brilliant Green. I, of course, you, you know the you know the rhythm of that. It's no problem. Remember the whole song because of that. Um, Funeral Pie, easy. You know what I mean? You just, you remember the rhythm band for that. Easy. Remember the song. So it was, it was a little, little spark of, well, let's put something different in. And each particular song don't sound like ACDC or those bands where they just plod through the songs and the drumming's exactly the same on every album. You know what I mean? It's, so there was that little thing from me. But I was, and I think Bruce was the same. You know, he, like I say, he played like a rhythm guitarist. So there was, there wasn't just the, you know, the bass foundation, but there was, there was rhythm and melody as well there. So, um, you know, and it just seemed to to create that that sound, which um, which, which which well eventually became the jam. And it was, you know, I think that meant that each and every song um, had its own, uh, you know, uh, input. Really, I, I mean, it, we didn't want to become boring. I suppose looking back on it, it's easy to say that you could see the progression of the band, the roughness from you know the, the sort of raw energy of in the city to you know getting more and more slick or uh, studio savvy by the time you know. Um, sound effects comes out or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's, we were trying to be intelligent about it, I think, and moving on and, and evolving. What can you do with a three-piece band? You don't, not, the, not that you haven't done before, you know? I'm aware of time, so I'm going to get to some of the fans' questions, but there's, there's an element for me where the combination of the three of you, those lyrics which are just some of the best poetry that's ever been written, the bass lines from Bruce just stand out as soon as you hear those on the radio or on you know what the song is and you you love every second but the the rhythm and the the driving the song forward from you as well it was the three of you that that made that band and so i'm going to give you a couple of questions from the fans if that's all right hello there rick it's the magic mod what was it like being in the best band in the fucking world (laughs) thank you ben otherwise known as the magic mod love it um similar question actually from from twitter at long live the jam what would you say was the jam's legacy um mm, it's a difficult one when you're standing in the middle of it um uh, because our perspective on it was was different from obviously everybody else's um but i think um, I, I like the idea that we, um, you know, we did move on. We didn't become boring, and that we did sort of, you know, and and I suppose in a lot of the ways that a lot of the songs still, te- you know, have, have lasted the test of time. That you could, especially the later ones, uh, they, you know, they still stand up quite well as songs, uh, lyrically as well as musically. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's always a nice thing to look back on. There's nothing too embarrassing about some of them. You know, um, so yeah, that's I don't know. It's difficult to, to answer from from an insider's point of view because we we just got on with what we did and enjoyed what we what we did, and you know, and um, so we were so wrapped up in the creative side of it and the, and the you know the actual performance side of it that we didn't we didn't sort of look back too much at that time. You know, we were all constantly looking forward and um, you know, how can we reinvent ourselves all the time? Uh, there's another one from Trevor Neal. Uh, Trevor's recorded a little message for us, which I'll play. Hello, Rick. It's uh, Trevor here from uh, Trevor and Simon. We met years ago, actually. It's, it's been a while since we last caught up. It was probably about 40 odd years ago, 1979. Um, I saw you in Debenhams when you were on tour with the Setting Suns show. You were standing under the escalator with Bruce while Paul was doing some shopping. I got your autographs. I'm sure you remember that. And you'll definitely remember in the evening because I came to see the show and went backstage after, got your autographs again. I was the 16 year old mod lad wearing a parka. Yeah, anyway, it's been a while, but um, obviously we won't be able to meet in Debenhams again now they've gone into administration. But uh, if you're ever in Asda in Broadstairs, let me know. We could we could uh, catch up. 
Anyway, uh, about the question, you're obviously an amazing drummer. You're always very comfortable behind the kit and you make everything look quite easy. I play in a covers band and when we play Tube Station, uh, sometimes our, our drummer needs resuscitating afterwards. Um, admittedly, we do extend the, the drum solo a bit for, for, for about half an hour or so, but um, it's obviously a difficult song to play. So I wondered, in the jam set list, were there any songs that gave you the jitters a bit or, or a sense of dread when you saw they were coming up from a drumming perspective? I mean, I'm sure there wasn't because you obviously cope with them, but I just wondered if there was the odd song that you had your doubts about. That's all. Uh, anyway, uh, nice talking to you. Cheers. All the best. Bye. Um, no, not really. Um, <laughs> that's, that's like an easy answer to that. But uh, I mean, like any, any, especially drummers, I suppose, once you've got two or three songs under your belt in a set, you start to warm up. The more energetic and uh, uh, tracks that you need to play are easily tackled. The most difficult, I mean, if you started the set off with Funeral Pie, it'd be a complete mess. <laughs> because you know what I mean I'm not really warmed up enough <laughs> so it's nice to put that nearer the end you know um, and of course the other thing what I really didn't like was the fact that just as you're really you know running at top temperature the show's over yeah. you know you think you could well, I want to do another half an hour do you know what I mean or something <laughs> but the, as particular individual songs no uh, you know um, we were so like I say we were so well rehearsed and so well played most of the time it, it, it wasn't really an issue um, it wasn't very good to take, say, you know, a month off and do absolutely nothing because then it was hard work to get back up to what you remember it being. Um, practice, practice, practice again, you know. Love it. Uh, Stephen Williams says, ask him about the lion. I don't know what, I don't know what that means. <laughs> we used to borrow vans. We never had a van in the early days. So anybody who had a van, we used to borrow it off them, almost steal it, in, you know. Um, and there was one guy who, who owned a small lioness um, and he used to bring it along to the Michael's Club where we used to play on a Friday night late. You know, he used to go on to the <laughs> early hours. And we used to, it was like the size of a small dog when we first saw it. But obviously these things, they grow, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And he couldn't keep it in the house anymore. He was tearing up the furniture. You know, when it stood up, it was about six, seven feet tall. You know, I mean, it was enormous. So he bought this Luton van, and he kept it in the back. You know, those big sort of box vans with a, yeah. with a shutter back to them. <laughs> um and of course, we borrowed his van. But if we borrowed the van, we had to take the lion with us to the shows. You know, people don't believe you, right? but it's it's absolutely true. And this lioness was—I mean, it was as tame as anything. You know, I mean, it, I mean, it was—it it was just big and it was quite frightening. I mean, on one particular occasion, some guys said, "Oh, we'll give you a hand, move the equipment out of the club in in Farnborough in a place called the Tumbledown Dick." Um, and so we got the equipment out, and we said to him, "Now look." We're going to open up the back and we're going to put the equipment in and then we're going to shut the door again because there's because a cat in here and we don't want it to get out. So they go, okay, righto. But when they saw the lioness, <laughs> they didn't <laughs> realise when you say cat, you know, it's, uh, they, I don't know what they were thinking, but it wasn't, it wasn't this sort of huge monster of a thing, you know, just sitting there chewing on a dead rabbit or something, you know. So there, there were problems. But I mean, eventually it just became uh, an issue for the owner and it got, yeah, I think they had to put it into, uh, you know, one of the uh, safari parks or something because it decked somebody in, in uh, Wokey Town Centre. Um, <laughs> You know, you take it for walks on a lead and this sort of thing. But yeah, I don't know whether you'd be allowed to do that these days. But it's a, it's a sort of nice memory of of uh, you know the odd one of the odd things that happened. 
Love it. Right. Uh, another one from Chombury FC on Twitter. I don't know if you remember doing the Jam fan club Q&As, but there was one <laughs> there was one bit in there from you where they asked you what your favourite single and LP was, and you said, don't know. And your hobbies were indoor games, your likes were indoor games, and your dislikes were outdoor games. <laughs> <laughs> Is that still the case? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I used to hate doing them things because I never could never really think of an answer. I thought I'd just say any old shit, really. Um, I, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not, not you know, I'm not keen on football. I don't play football or anything like that. I mean, I've, I'm a good backgammon player, so still stacks up. Still stacks up. Um, John Clapham, how many fags a day did you smoke in the jam days? You always seem to have one on the go in photos. <laughs> I know I could have smoked for England. I uh, twenty a day. I really, I not many more than that. Um, I smoked for 35 years I don't smoke anymore but uh, yeah it was just one of those things Um, somebody pointed it out to me one day that every single photograph of the jam one of us is smoking I mean Bruce didn't smoke I don't think but uh, um, yeah (laughs) <laughs> not, a, right. not a great advert for the health industry. No, exactly, yeah. A uh, couple of last ones. Baza, is there a modern band that you'd like to drum for? Um, I don't know. Uh, I think that changes all the time. It's I don't know. I mean, I remember one, one band that really struck me when I first heard them, and this was a while ago now, was Muse, because I've never heard... I hadn't heard an individual guitarist like that guy for a long time. You know, he's, you know, because they were three piece as well. I mean, I think that they had a really unusual sound, which was something new and something different. Um, but that must have been crikey. When, we, when did they first emerge? During the 90s, was it? Yeah. yeah. So it's nice to see something a bit different and get involved in, in that sort of thing. I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult because, you know, growing up with a, with a band, you sort of grow into it. And it's sort of to, to sort of slot into somebody else's uh, group is, I think, would probably be, uh, you know, it's, it's, oh, I've done it a couple of times and it's, it's a little bit different. You know, it's like sort of joining the club when, when the club's been going for 50 years, you know, and you're still yeah. a new member, you know. So Last one from Neil G, which is not really a question, but he said it'd be great for I could pass on. A personal thanks for me for being a, being a part of the best band in the world, the jam of my life, and it was all three members together that made it the complete package. And I've had so many comments like this from everybody saying about how much the jam means to them, that the fans were such an important, and still are such an important part of the success of the band and the legacy, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it was uh, the whole cultural thing. You know, people used to come to shows. They used to travel to go to other shows. They'd meet people, they, you know, faces that they knew, um, that they, you know, made friends. Some people met their, you know, their future wives and husbands. And, you know, so it was very much a community thing, which was absolutely fabulous. And we used to talk to the fans after the show and and that sort of thing, which, so the, 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 uh, yeah, it was a, it was a lovely sort of. Um, well, I suppose it was like a sort of community, really, of, of like-minded people. And you know, we didn't shut ourselves off. We didn't, you know, not like a lot of people do these days. There was no us and them, you know. And I think we we appreciated very much in those days, you know, the the, the people who who kept us in work, if you like, uh, doing what we loved doing, were the people who who came to the shows and bought the records. So, and it was nice to talk to them. They appreciated everything, and you know, in the same way that we appreciated what you know what they were about. So. Yeah, it was a, definitely a two-way street, and it is nice to to think that you know people look back on those days in the same sort of fondness that, that you know I, mean, I do as well, and I'm sure Bruce and Paul does also. You know, 
Yeah. Uh, Rick, this has been so lovely. I have two final questions for you, which are the standard questions on this podcast. Two final questions for you. Uh, you're allowed one song for the rest of your life. It can be anything from the jam. You could pick Style Counts or Paul Weller Solo, but my gut is it'll be the jam. Which one are you going to go with? Uh, well, it'd have to be, a, you know, there's no way off. Let's not go there. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if it was a jam song, I don't know. That, I mean, if we, I like every single one of them. I think any any one of the jam song could have been a single, um, which I yeah. think is nice to think about. Um, yeah, there's some there's some gems on some some albums that uh, you know, uh, I, things like Life from a Window. I think was a, was a fabulous song. A lot of the stuff on Modern World album got passed over a bit too quickly, maybe. I mean, I'm particularly proud of things like, you know, Riverbank or Absolute Beginners, maybe. I don't know. I mean, how long you got? I mean, I yeah. could probably <laughs> run through the whole lot, really. Which one would you put on straight after this podcast? If you were going to play one song straight after this, which one would it be? Or you were going to drum on? If you were going to have a little drum around, which would it be? Oh, uh, let's do Absolute Beginners then. I think that's... Uh, that's a good one to do. I'll let you have this. Um, and now I appreciate this question is probably going to be a tough one as well. But the idea of this podcast also is to be able to um, chat with Paul at the end of the series as well. Is there anything that you think I should ask him? Is there anything you'd like from a Rick Buckler point of view me to cover off? Uh, no, not really. I just, you know, he's obviously sort of, um, you know, taking his own decisions and that's fine. I think it's well, I think everybody's happy with that, really. So yeah, I mean, I just uh, ask him if he wants to come down the pub sometime. I don't, think, I don't think he doesn't drink anymore though, does he? He's, no, I'll buy him an orange juice, you know. I didn't ask you about the booze actually, because the the riders you guys had were pretty interesting to say the least. What was yours? Two bottles of red wine, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Paul's blood. Yeah, oh, nice. What was Bruce and Paul's? Uh, Bruce was two bottles of Bacardi, and Paul was two bottles of vodka. <laughs> And, and talking to Dennis Monday, they sound, I mean, some, some of those tours sound pretty messy, to say the least. Well, yeah, they could be. I mean, you know, drinking became our sort of hobby because it was the easiest thing to do. So we always met in the bar in a hotel um, if that was, you know, order of the day. And a lot of steam, you know, I mean, probably drank far too much. People used to warn, don't go out with those guys. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll, you'll regret it. Uh, most of the time, I think they did. I don't think they were they were up to our sort of standards, really, in that respect. It was the worst. It was the one that you had to keep up with, or you had to you had to try not to keep up with, I should say. Well, I, I didn't used to drink during the day at all because um, I can't play if I'm drunk. Yeah. Paul used to drink all day, right from you know the early hours. Bruce used to start at midday. I mean, more another fond memory was crates of beer left over from the rider from the night before being loaded onto the bus as in the morning as we'd leave and you get to about 10 11 o'clock in the morning and you hear the as you as the bottles start to open you know <laughs> um so that became a bit of a mess really i you know you can't keep that sort of stuff going for long i mean paul was often physically sick before a show because he drank too much or or whatever so um it's not good it's not good you know this has been such a blast thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it man no thanks very much it's, it's been good okay cheers all right. Wow, wow, wow. My thanks once again to Rick for giving up some time to chat on the podcast. You can find out more about Rick's story in the brilliant book, That's Entertainment, My Life in the Jam, which was created with another one of my podcast guests, Snowy. And my thanks to him for sorting out that chat with Rick as well. Really appreciate it. I cannot quite believe Rick Buckler has been on the Paul Weller fan podcast. Amazing.
Next up on the podcast, my guest is Daniel Rachel, musician turned award-winning author. Not only did he write the brilliant Isle of Noises, Conversation with Great British Songwriters, which was a Guardian and NME Book of the Year, but more recently, Walls Come Tumbling Down, the music and politics of Rock Against Racism, Two-Tone and Red Wedge, of which Mr. Weller played a key part, and Don't Look Back in Anger, The Rise and Fall of Cool Britannia. I cannot recommend these two amazing books enough, and we'll hear all about them and the links with Mr. Paul Weller on the next podcast. Don't forget, make sure you share this episode on social media. If you're part of a jam forum on Facebook, then plug the heck out of it, please. It's a busy old place, so the more you can do to help us to shout about this podcast, the more it helps us to find new listeners to the show and the more it helps us, I say us, me, basically, to achieve that end goal. You can find me on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time.